Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York. First things first, I missed you guys last week. I feel like I have not recorded a podcast for you in like 25 years or so. I really missed, uh, I've been in quite a practice of doing this basically every week. Just uh, last week was kind of a scheduled week off. I had some family stuff that I needed to do and... I uh, didn't really have time to do the podcast, but I missed you guys. I want to thank all of you for the love that you showed me on Twitter when I recently won a $100 buy-in PKO tournament. It had been about three or four weeks of losing that led up to <laughs> finally binking a tournament on ACR. It's a $100, $109 actually PKO and I took first place, which paid $3,100. But uh, more importantly, I collected, I don't even know how many bounties in the thing. There were something like 400 players. And I had uh, something like $4,800 worth of bounties. So a uh, very nice score. And I'm happy to say that I did another cash out shortly after that tournament ended. And I got the money almost right away. It was less than 24 hours that the uh, the Bitcoin cash out went through. So uh, just kind of updating ACR in general, as we often discuss on this program, whether you should be playing on there, is your money safe? And of course, you know, we went into great detail about this with Jonathan Little. The bottom line is we don't know if and when the federal government will decide to shut down ACR or at least limit America's access to that site, which would be funny because it's called America's Card Room. And if Americans weren't allowed to play on it, I think they might just want to change the name. <laughs> but uh, at least for now, I have had no issues getting money on and off using Bitcoin. So I uh, just want to let you guys know about that as well. I'm not endorsing the product. I'm not saying that you should put your life savings on ACR. Actually, that's why I do frequent cash outs. When I win, I like to get the money off of there as soon as I can because, as Jonathan Little pointed out, uh, we don't know for how long this will be uh, as liquid as it is right now. But for now, I'm enjoying the ride. I'm not allowed to legally play in New York City where I live. So if I can't get to New Jersey and I want to play online poker, I have to play on sites like ACR. That's not my fault. That is the fault of the government of the state of New York, which has not legalized online poker as of yet. Uh, so you know, before I go on to a political rant about you know, personal freedom <laughs> and start my libertarian ACLU diatribe, I'm going to change gears now and just say thank you all for following me on Twitter at Clayton Comic and for showing the love when I posted that uh, I had taken first in that tournament. Now, guys, I will never post 
second place or third place or I, I won't take a screenshot unless I actually win the tournament. I could literally final table 10 tournaments in one day and if I don't win any of them, you're not going to see screenshots because I just don't believe in sharing that. I play for first, so if I get first, I'll let you guys know. Otherwise, I won't be making any sort of big Hollywood production about it on Twitter. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, of course, it's nice to bink, but it was especially nice because I had suffered a fairly modest downswing for the three-week period prior to this tournament where I basically had a, a few min caches and a lot of bubbles. So it was actually had me starting to look at my play. Am I too aggressive on the bubble? Do I threaten people who don't feel threatened because they're just all pros and pros don't really care if they bubble or whatever? And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm still questioning that despite this win, uh, I won back a lot more than I had lost in the three weeks prior, but I still have to look at my game because you don't want to be results oriented, okay? You don't want to say, well, I won, so I must be playing well. Uh, definitely playing well is an important part of winning poker tournaments, but on any given Sunday, <laughs> any donkey could have his day. So don't be too fooled. Like if you're losing, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're playing very badly and if you're winning and, and taking it down, it doesn't always prove that you're the best player. I certainly don't think I was the best player in this tournament. It was a rather tough field. The $100 buy-ins on ACR are noticeably tougher than the $50 buy-ins. So I don't know if you guys will agree with that or not, but yeah, I just noticed a, uh, a much tougher level of competition People are more aggressive. They defend their blinds more and in different ways. And it's just a, a different game at the $100 level. Now, I've been doing some work on PKO. I really like the format. I think it rewards my natural playing style uh, in the way that I will typically take a coin flip rather than pass on it uh, just because I don't mind gambling and I'm not afraid of variance. And very often, that's how you end up collecting bounties. And in a PKO format, half the prize pool is the bounties. So this one had a $50,000 guarantee, which it did not meet. There was an overlay, a small one, but an overlay nonetheless. The uh, prize pool was split, 25000 in normal prizes like you're used to in any other tournament, and 25000 in bounties. So... It's a very different format. You really have to take more risks, I think. And, you know, there was a spot towards the end of the tournament when I had a massive chip lead and it would have cost me 20% of my stack to make the call. Two players ahead of me were all in for 20% of my stack or less. And so, you know, I could collect some pretty substantial bounties. The problem was... I had Jack Deuce in the big blind. So I can call and close the action and see if I can beat whatever these two players have with this awful Jack Deuce. And I was getting almost four to one on a call. So four to one against two opponents. For this to be a break-even call, I would need 20% equity against two opponents. 
which I don't know. Will you have that against the shoving range of these two players? I don't know. Uh, you have Jack Deuce. But, you know, if one of them has ace-king and the other one has pocket eights, Jack Deuce is fine. You know, go ahead. So I was very torn in whether to make this call or not and decided to do it. Go ahead and put in 20% of my stack to try to collect. I think it would have been uh, $850 in bounties because it was toward the end of the tournaments. And the P in PKO stands for progressive knockout. So... You might start off collecting $50 for a bounty, but at this point, like I said, there was $800, $850 uh, in real money sitting out there for me to win. And remember, my prize for first place was only $3,100, so this was a lot. So I decided to make the call. I, didn't, I did not end up winning that pot, but I was just wondering during and afterwards whether we should call. Now, in any other tournament, even getting 4-1, to one, you just fold your jack deuce and let those two <laughs> battle it out. There's no incentive. But this is one of the, the key differences between playing a PKO. And by the way, even though I lost that pot, I still had the chip lead. That's how massive my chip lead was at that point. But it brought me down a little closer to earth. Um, I entered the final table with the chip lead and never really gave it up. I think at one point I dropped down to second place. But... Uh, a lot of it, guys, had to do with my luck. I was running great. I remember one hand in particular, I got all in. Uh, well, another player went all in and I called with king-queen. And he had ace-queen and I ended up winning that pot and collecting that bounty. So, you know, if, if I'm going to be able to beat ace-queen with king-queen, then I'm probably going to win the tournament. So, uh, yeah, it was a good time. And it was fun. I know a couple of you were actually railing because uh, you sent me messages on Twitter. So that was nice as well. Always appreciate it. I wanted to update you guys about my Twitch stream. It's not happening. It turns out the uh, programs that you need to use to do a Twitch stream in the way that I want to, they're not programs that are designed to be used on a laptop. So it may be possible to be a Twitch streamer on a laptop, but... Uh, the software that I'm familiar with and that I'm learning, I need to get a desktop computer. And that's not really conducive to my lifestyle. You know, I live in a small apartment in New York. I don't have like a home office computer set up uh, here. I could make that happen, but I don't plan on it. So I'm sorry for those that wanted to follow me on Twitch. I don't expect to be doing much Twitch in the near future. So enough about that. Let's get to the topic at hand. The big, the heads up, high stakes feud between Doug Polk and Daniel Negreanu. Uh Didn't have a very feudy vibe to it. Uh, I was expecting something a little bit more tense, a little bit more of a knockout, drag out, knockdown, drag out, whatever the expression is. Um, the poker was interesting. The banter, I actually tweeted at one point that it seemed like they were on a date. You know, they were actually being so polite to one another. And I found that interesting because Doug is so vicious in his attacks of Daniel when he is online, when he's just in his home studio making videos for YouTube or whatever, 
But now, face to face, he was much softer. And I use the word softer because that's the word that Daniel used uh, prior to the match. Poker Go released a video of all the mean things that Doug has said about Daniel and how the feud got started, kind of like promoting the event. It's almost like if you were Don King and you're trying to tell everybody to come see this great boxing match, and then when when you get there, the the two boxers don't want to punch each other. Uh, there were really no jabs thrown. So now I want to look at this from all possible angles. First of all, the betting angle. I know many of you have taken action on this. I personally have uh, a small bet on Doug. Small, comparatively, anyway. Uh, I got four to one, and I think that's probably about right. I don't think it's a great bet. I think that Doug is probably a five to one favorite. So that's a pretty significant difference. The difference between four to one and five to one is something like a 15% edge, if my math is correct. Whether you're 17% as a five to one underdog or 20% as a four to one underdog, the difference between 17% and 20% is not 3%. It's 15%. So if my estimate is accurate, which I have no way of knowing, <laughs> if I'm even close to what the actual edge that Doug will have in this match is, uh, but if I'm right, then that's a good edge and uh, you know very profitable bet long term. So I laid four to one. And I'm pretty happy with my side. I just think that even Daniel knows he's an underdog. It's not a question of who's the favorite in the match. So the market kind of oscillated between four to one and five to one. I know some people got four and a half to one. One person got 10 to one, which, you know, if somebody offered me 10 to one, I would take Daniel and pretty much invest my life savings in that because. That's just a ridiculous bet. It's a type of opportunity you're only going to get. I mean, almost nobody is that big a favorite in a 25,000 hand heads up match. Yeah, so if you guys don't know, they're playing 200, 400 with no ante, uh, heads up, no limit cash game. The first 200 hands were played, uh, as I'm recording this Thursday, they were played Wednesday night on Poker Go and streamed for free on other platforms as well uh, with cards up the rest of the match so they only played 200 hands so not even one percent of the total hands have been completed at this point they're going to play another 24,800 hands although whoever is down has the right to quit after 12,500 I would take uh, any bet that that doesn't happen these guys are both too proud to ever throw in the towel. I, I can't imagine a scenario where one of them quits the match in the middle. Uh, and also, a lot of them have action, major action on them from their friends, their fans. You know, Daniel mentioned that Mattisal made a very large bet. I think he said 20% of his total bankroll. Um, I, I feel Halmuth has a lot of money. Bill Perkins has money on this match. So a lot of people have risked a lot of funds to have a sweat here. So I don't really think that anyone's going to buy out or, or you know, just take the, take the L, as it were, after 12,000 hands. I doubt that very much. 
yeah, so I was surprised that it wasn't more feudy. Uh, I, you know, I don't like Doug's antics. I like Doug, though. I think Doug is funny. I think he's great for poker. He's got a personality, and he kind of brings that heroes versus villains kind of dynamic that makes watching sports fun. I mean, can you imagine baseball without the Yankees? Like, we have to have someone to either love or love to hate. And so Doug is that kind of figure in the game. He also, on another level, is kind of like the people's champion because he does speak up when he sees injustices in poker. He did great work investigating the Mike Postle cheating scandal, and he's been extremely outspoken when he feels like websites are being unfair to the players and things like that. So... But overall, I think that Doug is uh, a troll, right? So he's good at trolling famous people online to get clicks. And he's built an empire on YouTube and with his training site as well. So I think that with all that in mind and knowing that he is a big favorite, people were expecting him to bring some of that bravado, some of that braggadocious energy to this match. And instead, you know, they sat down, they said, how are you? Um, it's nice to play live poker again. At one point they're asking each other, you know, did you play hockey as a kid? Do you enjoy hockey? You know, like they're just like having this conversation similar to what you might have on a date when I think a lot of us were more bloodthirsty and expecting a, uh, <laughs> you know, more of a, you know, taking shots at each other kind of vibe. I mean, Doug sort of hinted a few times at certain shots, but he did it with a big smile on his face and he did it in a very cordial and respectful and polite way. And I wonder how much of that has to do with him being, as Daniel says, much tougher when he's hiding behind his computer than when you're looking someone in the eye. I think it's much harder to be an aggressive bully live than it is to be one on the internet, obviously. Uh, but I also wonder how much of it is just you know, there's a lot riding on this. You know, not it's not just my pride. I want to. I want everyone to see that uh, you had the right side when you when you bet your money on me. But also, you know, they have side bets on themselves, and they're also thinking about all of their friends and fans that may have invested in them. So it seemed more like there were some nerves on Doug's part, maybe because he doesn't play live poker very often, um, and maybe because he just felt nervous because when you talk the talk, then you have to walk the walk. And he may have been afraid to make a mistake early. One of the first hands, Doug did a non-GTO, very ill-advised bluff that gave Daniel a fairly substantial chip lead um, early. Well, I guess you don't call it a chip lead in a cash game, but you guys know what I mean. I feel like after that, Doug sort of woke up and said, oh, I need to stick to my game plan, which... You know, Doug has been studying and studying and studying to try to get as close to GTO, game theory optimized, for a heads-up match. Now, this is his bread and butter. He made uh, untold fortunes playing heads-up, no limit, online years and years ago for quite a while. He was once considered the very top heads-up, no limit, hold'em player in the world. And he talked about how back then he used to be an exploitative player and try to find holes 
in his opponent's games and then try to exploit those mistakes. But now he's basically come around to the extreme other way of thinking, which is if I can play as close to theoretically perfect as possible, then whatever Daniel's doing that's not that, I'll just make that that money. And over 25,000 hands, that is plenty of poker to see most of the variance wash away. And now in heads up, there is a ton of variance as you, as you, as you, now in heads up, there's obviously always a ton of variance, but over the 25,000 hands, the idea is that it won't be like a, a quick coin flip kind of sit and go format. This is going to be a real match and it should determine who is the better player with little doubt. So I think once Doug made that big mistake, he, uh, <laughs> he kind of woke up and decided to play GTO or as close to it as he could. And I think that he did a good job of that. I think that Doug played very well um, after maybe the first three or four hands. And once he kind of got his bearings a little bit, uh, he did not run very good. He, <laughs> he ended up losing $100,000. 250 big blinds or so, maybe a little bit more. Uh, but like I said, it's not even 1% of the match completed yet. So for the bet I made, I'm not worried. Now on the other side, there's Daniel, who apparently has some coaches that want to remain nameless. I don't know if Daniel's been using software or if he's just been talking to the players that he is most friendly with. Or whatever, I don't really know because he didn't want to reveal their identities. He claims that those people don't want to be named. So Daniel has been working and preparing for this match. Now, based on what I saw in the first 200 hands, I think that Doug has a very large edge in this match, especially now that it's moving to online and whatever talents Daniel has for reading his opponents and looking into their souls and whatever else is going to be out the window. I think that now that the game is moving online and Doug can pretty much just focus on trying to be uh, a GTO bot as best he can, I think that he's going to be a very, very big favorite in this match. I'm not even worried that he's down 100,000. Personally, I like Daniel. As I mentioned on this show many times, I've worked with Daniel some. I've hung out with him a bit. Uh, he's not one of my best friends. I'm not pretending that we're like buddies or bros or whatever. But, you know, we follow each other on Twitter. How's that? <laughs> so, um, yeah, to me, it's all about Twitter. So I, I, I sort of feel bad betting against him because I do like him. And it is fun to root for the underdog, especially when that underdog is an older player who has been the object of so much vitriol and so much venom from the brash, outspoken young gun, who, by the way, did not decide to wear any writing on his T-shirt, just a plain black T-shirt in the match, which I thought was also interesting because he's been known to try to make a statement with words on a shirt. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm kind of torn. Even though I have a wager on this, I just thought I made a good bet, and that's all I ever try to do. So I thought Daniel ran really great. Uh, I didn't think that he played very well. Now, look, let me just make a disclaimer right here. I'm sure that Daniel Negreanu versus Clayton Fletcher, Daniel would be a large favorite in any format of poker, whether it's Badoogie, 
seven card stud, no limit hold'em, heads up, limit hold'em. I don't know one poker game that I'm a favorite over Daniel. That said, and, and admitting that, watching him play, I was not impressed with some of his decisions that seemed to be more than just decisions in the moment, but more part of a broader strategy. And I'm wondering if any of you want to send me a tweet at Clayton Comic, let me know why you think Daniel did certain things. There's only 200 hands, but it's enough to notice uh, certain tendencies. For one, there was not one hand where Daniel semi-bluffed. So if he's in position and he flopped a flush draw, he checked behind. Literally every time. He did not semi-bluff once in the match, which I found perplexing because if you don't want to bet, you don't want to bluff because you're worried about getting raised off your hand or whatever, okay, fine. But when you have a strong draw, a flush draw or an open-ended straight draw, you can afford to call that check raise if it comes. And you also have the added value of being able to take the pot down right now. Now, the deception factor of if the flush comes in, then Doug won't ever think that I have it because if I would have had a flush draw on the flop, then I would have bet it. I get that, but that's an exploitative strategy. And if Doug is going to be using a GTO strategy, there is literally no way for Daniel to exploit that strategy. And so it seems more like he's trying to minimize variance and keep the pots small, which I think when you are an underdog, in a certain match, keeping the pot small is exactly what you should not do. In fact, if I had to play 25,000 hands heads up against Doug Polk, I would be making the pots as big as possible. Uh, maybe 2xing the pot when I have a flush draw, just hoping he folds. But if he doesn't, whatever, I, I have a flush draw. Maybe I'll get there. You, know, you need to take more risks when you're the underdog. That's just true in almost every game. So Daniel was playing a style that I think would have made more sense for Doug. Always checking behind on the turn with second pair or a draw. He hardly ever bet the turn in position, which I also think is a mistake. You know, If you're not going to get value for your hands when you have them, then over the course of 25,000 hands, Doug will be getting paid off on his hands and Daniel will not. So I really did not understand the strategy unless it was just trying to set something up for what he plans to do online or or something like that. Now towards the end of the match, well towards the end of the of the episode, the 200 hands that they showed on PokerGo, we saw some more, you know, pre-flop, 3-bet, 4-bet, that kind of thing, but overall it was a very pot control -y kind of strategy by Daniel, which I really did not understand at all. Uh, another thing I noticed that there was absolutely no limping preflop, which is totally uh, standard for these stacks depths. You know, they're playing 50K stacks with a $400 big blind, so it really doesn't make, make sense to have a limping strategy. Although I'm not even sure if a solver would say never ever limp but I know that there isn't much limping. So there were a few times when the small blind on the button just folded a hand like nine deuce off suit. Uh, so we saw that a couple of times, but there was never a time when they just limped in. 
So I thought that was interesting, rather just lose that $200 than try to go to war with a really terrible hand, even in position. Yeah, that was kind of my general overall impression from watching just these 200 hands. I believe that it's pretty clear that Doug is a lot better at no limit, heads up no limit than than Daniel is. And we knew this, but the question really is, is he four times better or five times better or 10 times better as one person wagered? So it should be interesting. It's going to take several months, I think, to complete this challenge that can play two tables at a time, maybe a few hundred hands a night, I guess, a couple of hours. I don't think it's going to be any 17, 18, 19 hour marathon sessions, but I guess we shall see as the weather gets colder and everyone's on lockdown. It might just be, maybe we'll just put in a a whole bunch of hours. So uh, another thing I wanted to comment on before I actually discuss two of the hands that the guys played, Kane Callis in his, I believe his debut as a Poker Go commentator, uh, color commentator, I thought he did a tremendous job. Uh, He obviously knows a lot about the game. He's got a beautiful speaking voice. I really enjoyed hearing his voice um, alongside Ali Najad, who I think is always very solid on the play-by-play. I thought the guys had a tough job in the booth because Daniel and Doug were on their date. You know, they were schmoozing each other and chit-chatting basically the whole time, telling stories about this day at the Mirage and that time in Puerto Rico, whatever. So it was hard for the commentators to get a word in edgewise. And as many of you know, I've done that type of work. One of the biggest challenges for the color commentator is to not feel pressured to overwhelm the audience with my vast knowledge of the game and trying to prove myself or come up with a funny line every five seconds. It just doesn't work that way. When you have two larger-than-life personalities, like a Doug Polk and a Daniel Negreanu, the color commentator can pretty much lay back and just find the spots where it's interesting poker to commentate on, maybe make a joke here and there. And I thought that Kane found a good balance once they figured out pretty early on that it was not going to be the Ali and Kane show at all. It was, (laughs) you know, kind of the rule is when the players are talking, the commentators need to stay out uh, almost always. But it's also hard when you're doing something live as they were to know how long that conversation is going to last. I mean, somebody might just make one little quick comment or it could be a whole story coming up and you just never know because it's unscripted. And I thought they did a pretty good job of navigating that and not covering the dialogue between the two players too much. So that was fun. All right, so now that the stage has been set, uh, let me know what you guys think. After watching, were you impressed with Daniel? Um, Did you think that there was anything to be gleaned from these 200 hands? It's almost like the first day of the baseball season, right? Everybody likes to overreact to that first game, opening day. Oh, that's going to determine who wins the World Series when there's actually another six months of play. So uh, I I would try not to overreact to this. But generally speaking, I think that Daniel's strategy to try to beat Doug in this match is flawed from the beginning. And I'm not sure who his coaches are, but I'd love to get uh, some 
dissent from all of you. If anyone disagrees with me and you think that for Daniel to keep the pot small and have a never semi-bluff or never bet second pair on the turn in position kind of strategy, if you if you can see the logic behind Daniel doing that, please share it with me on Twitter because, as I said before, I'm very much at a loss. All right, so let's talk about hand number 163. At this point in the match, Doug was up, actually, about $7,000. So back and forth and back and forth. At one point, Daniel had been up $30,000, and I think Doug had run it up to maybe $16,000. So it looked like a pretty even match. And part of that was Daniel was keeping all of his pots when he was in position small, not semi-bluffing. He did raise to $1,000 every time where Doug was making it 900 so I don't know if there's anything to be garnered from that. But otherwise, they didn't really play that many big pots. But hand number 163 I found very interesting, highlighting some of the issues that I've been discussing. So in this hand, Doug is on the button and he opens to 900 As I said, that was his standard open. Uh, and he, he's holding the uh, nine of spades and six of clubs. And Daniel decides to call 500 more with six of spades, five of clubs. So Doug with nine, six and Daniel with six, five. So there's 1800 in the pot and the flop comes queen of diamonds, nine of diamonds, eight of spades, queen, nine, eight. So Doug has middle pair and Daniel has a gut shot to bottom end of the straight. And both players check. Now, I can understand this flop action. I I don't have any issues with the pre-flop action, by the way. I don't have any problem with this flop action either. Doug is in position. He's got middle pair. And it's okay with me if he doesn't want to bet it. I think the plan could be to sometimes bet the flop, sometimes check it back. Uh, Definitely bet if it's uh, a safe turn card and it checks to me again. I think you can go for some value here with middle pair or what would then be second pair on on a safe turn. Uh, So yeah, I have no issue with the flop whatsoever. Now the turn comes the tray of diamonds completing the flush. So it's queen nine, eight, tray with three diamonds. And Daniel again checks. Daniel has six, five offsuit with no diamond and checks again to Doug. Now I'm okay with that as well. I think that Daniel could also take a stab here. Actually, the logic that I mentioned earlier, it's unlikely that Doug has a flush right now. It's unusual for a player to raise with two diamonds and then flop a flush draw and check behind. Not that nobody ever does it, but you can sort of discount the likelihood that Doug has a flush when he did not bet in position on the flop. And now the flush gets there on the turn. So Daniel could start repping that flush or at least start to represent that he has a big diamond if he wants to lead out here on the turn. Now, I'm not saying that he has to do that. 
And if you do that every time, you're going to spew all your money away. But for me, it feels like a spot because we can set things up. If another diamond hits the river, Daniel can bet again and almost always take it down. If you think about it, Doug was probably going to bet if he just had the bare ace of diamonds, like if he had a hand like ace 10 and it comes queen 9-8 with two diamonds, certainly Doug would bet that flop a lot of the time, right? Because that's what a GTO bot would do. There are certain flops where continuation bets make more sense. And many of those flops involve backdoor possibilities. So if Doug flops three diamonds, he would often bet the flop hoping to pick up equity on the turn, which will often be in the form of a fourth diamond, giving him the nut flush draw when he has the ace of diamonds. So Daniel should know all of this and know that it is now unlikely that Doug has a big diamond or a flush. Of course, it's not impossible, but it is unlikely given the action and the playing style that Doug has been exhibiting lately, which is pretty close to what a computer model would recommend. So with all that, Daniel could now take this pot. When you're out of position in a heads-up battle, you have to find spots to be aggressive on the turn. But Daniel checked, and then Doug is very happy to just check back. It's not a good card for him to try to get value. It's, it's much harder to get value from my pair of nines now that the flush did come in. So I, I'm fine with the check back here by Doug on the turn. Uh, the river is a king of diamonds. So there are four diamonds now. Final board of queen, nine, eight, tray, king with four diamonds. And neither player has a diamond. And I agree with Kane Callis, the commentator, who said what's fun is when heads up when nobody has anything. I mean, that's really where the money is made. Look, if you flop a set heads up, you're going to win a big pot if your opponent has a decent hand, right? That's not exactly an art form. But when it comes to trying to figure out who's going to win in the long run or over 200 or 25,000 hands, I believe that it will often be the player who wins the pots where neither player has a hand. So we check, check again here on the river and Doug scoops the little pot here. Uh, this hand was interesting to me because I thought it would be a great opportunity for Daniel to finally bluff and take one. If a pot appears to be available, why not go for it? And the logic to me that would apply is that I can have a flush, but Doug can't. Okay, now let's look at hand number 170. So at this point, Doug still had a modest lead. He was up about $6,000 or so. And Daniel has the button in this hand. And he opened to 1000 with the King-9 offsuit. He's got 53000 in his stack. And he makes it 1K with King-9 off. Totally standard for a heads-up cash game. And Doug wakes up in the big blind with ace-queen and puts in a good size three bet to 4,125. So basically 4x of Daniel's open. 
And he's got the Ace of Spades, Queen of Diamonds. So I like this play by Doug. Obviously, there hasn't been actually a ton of three betting and four betting pre-flop. But Daniel has pretty much opened, I would say, 95% of the buttons in the first 170 hands. So Ace, Queen, it's, it's a clear three bet. And there's no, there's no controversy here. But things do get interesting because at that point, Daniel makes it 9,600. Again, holding King 9. So he puts in 9,600 out of his 53,000. Now that's a really small bet, by the way. Offering Doug about 3 to 1 on a call. But it does make sense from the standpoint of Daniel not wanting to put in too much of his stack before the flop. So... For that reason, I don't really mind the smaller 4-bet size. Also, I do think this is the 4-bet sizing that Daniel would choose if he had a hand like pocket kings, pocket aces. So I'm fine with it. And Doug now has a decision. Do I just want to get all in here with ace-queen? Well, against a lot of opponents, it's actually fine to go ahead and shove here with 125 big blinds effective or whatever it is. Take a coin flip or try to take it down pre-flop with ace-queen. Because a lot of players, they get a little bit four-bet happy. And you can make a lot of money just winning, taking it down. Like if Doug can just get his hands on that 9,600 without a flop, that's a pretty big boost to his current $60,000 chip stack. So uh, there is an argument to be made for just shoving. But I think the argument to be made for calling and seeing the flop is, well, I'm getting three to one on a call and I'm up against an opponent that hasn't put in a four bet maybe once in the first 170 hands. We don't want to get coolered out here. We don't want to shove and get snap called by aces or kings or ace king or whatever. So Doug decides to just call and take the flop out of position And I don't really think at this point in the hand that Doug knows where he's at. His ace-queen could be good. It could be no good. We just don't know. And now we have a big pot. 19,000 in the middle. Daniel with 44,000 behind. And the flop comes jack of spades, 10 of diamonds, tray of diamonds. Jack, 10, tray with two diamonds. And Doug, first to act, holding the ace of spades and queen of diamonds. So he's got a gut shot. He's got two overcards. He's got a backdoor queen high flush draw. So he's got a lot going on. And he checks, which I think because Daniel put in the last aggressive action before the flop, Doug will pretty much check every flop over. And Daniel puts in 4,000. Tiny bet. It's less than a quarter of the pot. And I'm not really sure what Daniel is doing with this bet i don't really think there is a hand that daniel should be making this bet with it's a wet board jack 10 tray with two diamonds if daniel has a big pair he should be putting in more chips now to try to get value for that big pair and also simultaneously protect uh versus any number of possible draw combinations that doug could have King, queen, any two diamonds. Daniel not having a diamond should be concerned about 
all of that. And so I think this is a bad play by Daniel just betting 4,000. The case to be made is he's only got 44,000 behind, so he doesn't want to blunt his weapons here, right here on the flop. So in other words, if he bets too much, he'll feel a little bit handcuffed later in the hand, which is also his reason for making such a small four bet pre-flop. The idea being that any bet should mean something from the player who put in the four bet pre-flop. But, you know, Doug just has too much going on here. He cannot fold for 4,000. And I think that raising is reasonable. I think that if Doug wants to take a more of a high variance approach here, he could even shove and that would be fine. I mean, it would be another 40,000. There's already 25,000 or so in the middle, 23,000 right there. So that's fine with me. If, if Doug does that and he gets snapped off by three jacks or pocket aces or whatever the case may be, you know, that's okay. We still even have outs against anything, some at least. So I'm okay with that, but that's not really Doug's style. And that's not what the GTO bots do. If you're given better than five to one on a call and you can have up to 10 outs, you just take it and see a turn. So that's what Doug does. He calls the 4K. And now with 27,000 in the pot, we see a turn and it's a six of hearts. So Jack, 10, Trey, six. So the flush is no longer a possibility for Doug. And he checks it again. And Daniel again bets tiny, tiny into this pot. He bets 5,600 into 27,000. And again, Doug calls, and I really can't blame him. You know, he's got up to 10 outs. An ace could be good. A queen could be good. And a king is quite obviously good. So go ahead and call. That's fine with me. I also think that shoving again here is okay on the turn. It puts Daniel in a tough spot when he doesn't have one of those big pairs that he's representing. The problem for Doug is ego. If you shove and get and you hear the, the word call right away, you just you feel crushed. And because he doesn't know where he's at and because he hasn't known where he's at at any point in this hand, he's just happy to take the attractive pot odds and try to make a hand. So Doug calls and that's fine. The pot is now 38,400 and Daniel with about 35,000 behind. So just under a pot size bet. So that's one thing you could say about the tiny sizing on the flop and turn is that it sets up basically a pot size bet on the river if Daniel wants to three barrel this unimproved or even three barrel it if he makes his straight. Because remember on this flop, Jack 10 Trey, both hands, the King nine for Daniel and the ace queen for Doug have gut shots. All right. So the river comes the four of clubs, a total brick if I've ever seen one. I guess the 7-5 got there, but <laughs> uh, we're not really thinking in those terms, are we? I mean, I guess it's heads up. You could have five deuce or seven. Yeah, okay, we didn't three bet and four bet with those cards. Doug checks again, and Daniel does pull the trigger. He moves all in for 35000 into 38000 and it's really the first and only big bluff that Daniel made in the entire match 
To his credit, Doug Polk does not snap fold, but of course he's not going to call with ace-queen high. Even the most GTO solver wouldn't have you doing that very often on this board, on this river, although I bet it's not 0%, it's probably less than 5%. So it's not the time for Doug to make a hero call with 30 hands of live poker remaining left on this telecast. And so he just decides to fold. And Daniel, of course, immediately lets him know that he'd been bluffed. So a little good-natured ribbing. But again, it was all about the poker and not about wearing blackface or saying more rake is better or any of those type of antics. It had a respectful and serious, you know, there's millions and millions of dollars at stake. So let's take this a little bit more seriously than just goofing around and making a funny YouTube video. So a good one for Daniel. And from that point, for the last 30 hands, Daniel pretty much could do no wrong. Doug bluffed some rivers when he had hands like five high and six high. And it just turned out that Daniel had the nuts on those occasions. And I don't have much to say about the hands that didn't work out towards the end for Doug, although he might have felt like it was a punch in the stomach. With 30 hands left, I'm up by 6,000. 30 hands later, I'm going home a $100,000 loser. <laughs> but that is the nature of heads up, no limit. You have to really strap yourself in and get ready for a, a wild ride. Although, I guess my biggest criticism of Daniel is that he did not seem to be welcoming the variance as much as a four to one underdog should. Now, perhaps Daniel thinks that he's not a four to one underdog and then he can actually go toe to toe and play small pots against Doug Polk for 25,000 hands and come out ahead. But if that is the strategy that Daniel intends to employ, I'm even happier than I was before with my bet. So that'll do it for today's episode. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this uh, discussion of the biggest heads-up match known to man. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing some of the hands played online. I know that at least Doug is planning to do a lot of Twitch streaming. I'm sure that Daniel will as well. So it should be something to keep us entertained into the winter months coming up. And I, for one, am very thankful for that. Very apropos here in November to be thankful for something. I'm thankful for all of you guys. I would not do this podcast without you. It takes two to tango, and I'm glad that you are listening and enjoying the work that we're doing here on the TPE podcast. And so please leave us a, a review, you know, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, you name it. We're looking for some love, so... Uh, please do that. Give us a nice review and help us attract more listeners so that we can continue bringing you this content week after week. So for everyone here at TournamentPokerEdge.com, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you very much for listening.